Welcome to Behind the Scenes with Brian, the podcast covering everything from engineering, mining, and mine waste management to whatever else may be on our minds. Pop in your headphones and don't forget to rate, subscribe, and share. And now, here is your host, Brian Ulrich. Hey everyone, this is Brian, this is Behind the Scenes with Brian, and I am here with an individual that wears several different hats, and I met him on a platform called Wikistrat over the last couple of weeks, and I gained an interest in his knowledge and background and understanding and innovation, uh, and uh, his name is Steve Rader. Hey Steve, how are you doing today? Hey, I'm doing great. Thanks, Brian. Yeah, I, I assume that you're somewhat quarantined like all the rest of us. Oh, yes. Uh, it's funny. I, I work from home all the time, but I uh, don't work from a fully populated home all the time. And I'm finding uh, that is the new challenge is the, the competing for all the resources and whatnot around the house. Interesting times. Yeah, for sure, for sure. I was telling my daughter I can't wait until we can look back on these days. Yeah. So. Yeah, it's gonna it's gonna be a rough haul, I think. So. It is. Hopefully, everyone's hanging in there. Yeah, and if you think about it, the Chinese have been more or less on lockdown since December, so it's it's not gonna go away anytime real soon. But possibly it runs its course just like flu does, and flu season runs its course, and you don't hear about it in the summertime. So, if we're lucky, um, maybe maybe that happens here as well. So, Steve, maybe you can tell us a little bit about your background and what led you to your choice at college. Sure. Well, let's see, I uh, grew up in Africa and uh, as a kid, and when I, I came back, we moved to Oklahoma, and, uh, you know, I really didn't know what I wanted to do, but um, I ended up becoming very interested in physics uh, and really enjoyed that, and so uh, I think after looking around, it looked like engineering was the way to go, and uh, mechanical engineering, everyone seemed to need one. So I decided to go into mechanical engineering uh, at Rice University uh, down here in Houston, and I proceeded to, to apply and get in and go through all of that, and it was a really amazing experience, and uh, sure enough, uh, I was able to get a mechanical engineering degree. Uh, I really liked that topic. Um, and from there, uh, NASA was hiring uh, mission control folks for space station, and so I, I ended up getting on at, at NASA in 1989. Oh, that's amazing! That's amazing. And uh, we we don't tend to hear a lot about NASA these days, but I know that there's a lot of things going on. We used to hear about it all the time with the Apollo missions and the space shuttle, but we hear less and less about it now. But I, sh- I should imagine there's a lot of things going on that just don't get the publicity that, th- that they used to. Yeah, you know, it's funny. Uh, this is, what, my 31st year at Johnson Space Center, and um, it has been an interesting ride because I've uh, worked on a number of canceled programs and some successful ones and shuttle and 
International Space Station uh, Constellation Program, and I've worked in lots of different roles. And it's it, it has always been a battle uh, to try to keep the public informed of what we're doing. And some of it, uh, much of it, is is um, political too, right? So sure. it, it shifts gears every four to eight years. And, uh, <laughs> so that's that's definitely taught me a lot about a. Uh, Organizations and organizational change, and uh, being being uh, agile <laughs> in trying to to keep up with uh, the changing directions of the organization. Yeah, yeah. But well, let's just go back a little bit. Where in Africa did you grow up? Yeah. Oh uh, yeah, uh, yeah. My parents were missionaries, and so we were in Zambia ah. when I was about six months old, all the way until I was. Uh, about 11 uh first few years we lived actually in the copper belt uh where mining was huge uh, yeah. copper mines were, were all over the place uh, in chingola and uh, kitwe and other towns like that and and then our uh, last year there i, I lived in Johannesburg and tell that so okay uh, what uh, kind of interesting uh, yeah what, what year did you leave Joburg? That would have been seventy nine. Mm. Yeah, much it. much different period. I lived there from nineteen ninety nine to two thousand and three. Oh yeah! Wow, nice. Yeah, it was. A, it's a beautiful. It's a very different place. I, yeah, yeah. yeah when uh, I lived there, it was very much uh, apartheid South Africa, so it was uh, a very different place. Yeah, yeah. Um, and but but it's a beautiful country with amazing vacation oh opportunities. There's mountains and oceans and deserts and everything in between. I I yeah, tell no, Africa is the most amazing place. Yeah, and it has some of the most amazing people. They really are just just uh, amazing. Uh, yeah, 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 for sure, for sure. Um, what 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 is your specialty now with NASA. Yeah, well, it's kind of interesting because um, this last few years have been kind of a ride for me. Back in 2009, I guess, uh, my brother convinced me, he was working at IBM at the time, convinced me to read a book by Jeff Howe called Crowdsourcing. Um, and he was the wired editor who had huh. coined the term crowdsourcing. So oh, interesting. Early days in the huh. crowdsourcing. Yeah. And and I read that book, and it was just fascinated by the capacity of what crowdsourcing could do, and and it started, it really uh, struck a, a, a tune with me because I just could see how NASA could benefit, how other organizations would benefit, and how really the world had changed. Um, and so I immediately went out and joined several different crowdsourcing sites, participated in different. Uh, events and different challenges to try to really understand what are other people doing? How is this working? Why are they doing it? Uh, how does it work? Uh, I got on a, a platform called Quirky, uh, which did some interesting things in the early days, uh, but I just had a real fascination for it. Well, about the same time, NASA had uh, a few engineers, uh, managers that were working pilots in that area in doing crowdsource challenges with uh, companies like Inocentive and Yet two and top coders, and um, and even did an internal uh, crowd as well. And so I started following that group, and and it kind of mirrored what my own interests and passions were. 
Uh, and then in 2013, they had an opening and uh, had actually established a center of excellence uh, around collaborative innovation. And uh, so I joined that group as the deputy and uh, have been really working that ever since. And so we have a group now that works across NASA as well as across the entire federal government, uh, helping organizations to understand what crowdsourcing is, to run challenges, to engage with crowdsourcing communities, all to solve hard problems and get work done a little bit better. And uh, now we've run, I don't know, I think over 400 challenges now. Uh, so, using so. 18 different crowdsourcing communities that represent, so, I think, 70 million people. So, <laughs> oh, wow, crazy. Wow. So, so maybe you could define crowdsourcing for us. Yeah, absolutely. So we focus on what we call curated crowds. So um, these are crowds, uh, and I say crowds, these are really companies that put together a platform, a website, um, usually, uh, and then they basically try to recruit people to join their platform. Um, and it's usually around a passion, right? So Top Coder, for instance, is 1.5 million software developers, and they have drawn software, people interested in software, learning software, connecting with other nerds like them, you know, however you want to yeah. think of that. Yeah. Um, and they've, they've kind of built that into a community where people have similar interests. There's a win-win, usually, where they're getting access to tools and access to training and knowledge. And then the company usually has another side to its network, it's a two-sided network, where one is working on the crowd, the other is actually working with companies to say, hey, look, I have all these passionate people uh, that are able to do this amazing work. Uh, do you have some work for them to do? And sure enough, companies uh, are benefiting from it. So Tongle, for instance, is a community, a crowdsourced community of 100,000 filmmakers who are passionate about learning that craft and doing it. And, and the way that they offer that to companies is they say, hey, look, you tell us what you need, you know, you need a campaign to sell your stuff or some advertising or whatever, or instructional video. They'll actually parse that into a series of challenges, a storyboard challenge, uh, an actual sh shooting scenes challenge, an editing challenge. Hmm. And at the end of it is this amazing video. Uh, Topcoder does the same thing with software. They chop it up into lots of little contests so that they'll have a user interface contest. And the people that are best at doing user interface will develop the user interface. And then it'll get handed off to the people doing the, the back end, or it'll get handed off to people to test for bugs. Um, and the whole idea is, you know, really it's a matching. It's, it's these platforms are really good at matching the particular people that are best to solve a problem with a problem. Hmm. So the companies come in with, I have a problem, I need something solved. Uh, and then these platforms are really good at finding the right folks. Some do this through like machine learning and matching or, yeah. uh, you know, Wikistrat has a whole portfolio of engineers. They're looking for a profile of, of folks that they can uh, deploy on a project. But what we find is challenges are actually one of the best ways to find the people that you don't know that you need. And in today's world, we're in a kind of uncharted territory with technology. Um, 
I, I use this in my talk all the time that I do this. That, that people don't realize that they realize there's lots going on, but the scope of it is really uh, just unfathomable. Nine out of ten of all scientists that have ever lived on the planet in the history of the world are alive today. Is alive today, yeah. That's, if that's you amazing. look at the curves, yeah. If you look at the curves for how many people have PhDs or how many patents are being filed, it is well beyond the knee of the curve, right, of an exponential curve, mm. which we're all getting very familiar with with the COVID, COVID virus, yeah, right? Yeah. It's what that exponential growth looks like. And so the, the thing about that, here's what's fascinating. There's so much going on, and so much of it is actually using common technologies that, that actually apply to almost every industry. So think about it, machine learning, 3D printing, uh, even drone usage, uh, blockchain, uh, cheap sensors, Internet of Things, everyone is doing stuff with this technology. And a lot of those building block technologies are getting combined with other technologies and ideas and innovations. And so what we're seeing is there's actually a lot of of technology and solutions that are out there that, that lots of different industries could actually leverage, but they're actually over here in agriculture or in medicine. And if you were to see them and see someone pitch, you know, hey, we're working on this machine learning that, that, that grows crops better, you would think to yourself, oh, that's great, but it has nothing to do with me. But somebody else that actually has experience in both agriculture and your domain might be able to look at that same thing and say, oh, no, with just a few tweaks or just recontextualizing uh, this, this actually solves a big problem for you. And in fact, that's exactly what we see in crowdsourcing. Crowdsourcing challenges find those people. They find those people that, that have intersections mm. in the cross-industry domain to put two and two together, or sometimes two and five and nine and twelve. It's yeah. They're, they're putting lots of little things together because they have visibility in ways you don't. And um, given as many new skills that are coming online and new expertise and, and the diversity of technology we have to follow, there's really no way for an individual or even a small company or even a large company to keep all of those skills and visibility to the levels they need. Uh, so this is, this is what I tell people. Crowdsourcing and crowdsource challenges really provide you a big net to go fishing with. If you have a problem and you've been working on it for five years with your expert, that you're probably not going to actually be able to find the solution using those people. Um, and that crowds provide that kind of opportunity to shake things up and find those new technologies and find those new applications. I've got stats on this even. Um, there was a study done of incentive challenges when they had uh, they had been just killing it uh, back in 2016 mm -hmm. they were solving something like 16 percent of all hard problems that that companies were bringing them uh so what wait, 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 80 percent yeah mm -hmm. um and harvard and mit went off and studied all of those solutions that they came up with and what they found was they were solving it 80 percent of the time of the solutions, 70% of the time, the person that saw, that brought that solution to them was not in the domain of the challenge owner. So if it was a chemistry problem, 70% yeah. of the time, it wasn't a chemist. 
that was solving the problem. <laughs> somebody else from one of these domains. And 75% of the time, the solution already existed. So it's, it's really happening out there. Uh, yeah. The I, other piece of that is... In, go ahead. Yeah, I, I keep on... Um, thinking how we we don't think that we're in knowledge silos but for example in mining we tend to stay within our mining world to solve our problems where somebody in the food preparation industry might have something that's readily applicable to what we're doing and and so we if, if we would you know cast the net a little bit broader we might find some solutions that we would yeah. never have come up with yeah, yeah. Well, and it's, you know, this, this whole innovation area is just fascinating, right? Because I think more and more people are saying, look, if you want to stay relevant, you want to stay in the game, you've got to be finding these solutions. Uh, there's a great example I think I shared with you earlier about uh, Sub C7, right? Who was, you know, had inspection services of, of pipeline bundles uh, on undersea pipelines, and they would take a, a ship out at a million dollars a day, drop a piece of equipment the size of a minivan down next to the pipeline, and it would take them two weeks to get a segment of pipe done. And they went and did a Nine Sigma uh, challenge and were able to identify a handheld piece of equipment that could do that same job in two hours. Now, that's a huge improvement. That's a 100x yeah. improvement. Yeah. Huge money saver. But here's the thing. If they hadn't found it and some other oil and gas company had, mm. they yeah. could potentially put them out of that business. Right? Mm. And that's the big thing is it's not just, hey, go find the better ideas. It's you better go find the better ideas because it is very possible that somebody's going to make you irrelevant using those latent solutions out there. And that's the thing that I think has really uh, turned me on to this thing is innovation. Like if you're if you're in a company that's doing well, likelihood is you're not spending enough on innovation because you've got you're making money. But uh, the hazards yeah. of that are are huge, right? And so everyone needs to actually be strategically investing more in trying to find that next piece um, because. It's it's happening, and you know, as I got into this, I started seeing all these things about innovation in companies that I had never even realized. Uh, one is people within a domain are blind to solutions that are right in front of them. Uh, mm, yeah. There's this groupthink that happens, right? We know about groupthink, but it's it's what's really surprising is how how that will sneak up on us. So there's a great example I like to use. Um, one of these companies uh, had uh, another company had brought them a problem that was how do you get grease off of potato chips? Uh, right. and, yeah. and the way they did it uh, was they actually had um, it was mechanical engineers are mostly the people who do food production. Mm -hmm. And so they had a vibration solution. They would vibrate these chips as they came out of the vat of oil, potato chips. And uh, it would shake the oil off, but it would also break a bunch of the chips. And so they're looking for a better way. Yeah. So they put the challenge out there, and, and the first thing that this company did was they rephrased the, the, the problem and said, instead of how do you get grease off of potato chips, we're going to ask, how do you remove a viscous fluid from a delicate wafer? Hmm. 
And by doing that, and that, that kind of boiling the problem down to something more central, more just physics-based, yeah. they put that out there. And sure enough, somebody came up with a solution to use uh, sound waves to, to do kind of a, huh. a vibration harmonics uh, thing where you can get the oil to actually vibrate off of the chips. Um, <laughs> really fascinating, uh, right? Yeah, how about but that? If you think about that, Who's, who are the experts in vibration? Mechanical engineers, right? That's mm, right I know I was right, trained in, right. in vibration. <laughs> yeah. But but that's who had been working on this for 50 years, and that yeah. solution never came to them. They were totally uh, blind to it. Uh, but you know who did actually come up with the solution? No. Who's a violinist. Oh, really? Who had seen the, the rosin fly off her bow understood kind of you know the mechanics of what vibration can do and said oh why don't you try this hmm. and uh i thought about that i was like yeah that's somebody who's visually seen something whereas a mechanical engineer is all kind of about the equations and the analysis and it's it's just a different way of looking at it right yeah yeah i, I remember a similar story and i'm not maybe going to remember all the details but there was a challenge put out to um, find a technology that can clean oil out of the ocean, petroleum out of the ocean. And I have no no idea who won first place. The the winner of the second place consisted of a, a a barber, a driller, and a mechanic. And oh, wow. you, you wouldn't think that any of those individuals would have any expertise at withdrawing petroleum from the ocean. Yeah. But together, somehow, there was something magical about it. And, and if, if I could remember the yeah. whole story, it's a, it's a little bit more interesting than that. But it is amazing how sometimes you're too close to the forest to see the trees. Well, it, it's interesting because we're moving into a new era of uh, knowledge and people um, and their skills. And I can tell you so many stories where uh, there's somebody out there who has gotten turned down for 15 jobs in like, you know, machine learning around uh, biology problems. And that person goes on to be the solver of some biology machine learning challenge that's worth a million dollars. That is happening all the time, and and a lot of times um, you'll get these really unsuspecting characters that will just come out of the woodwork. There's a there's actually a class of people uh, that I call super solvers. Yeah, um, we worked with one of them, but I've actually met a few who, you know, they'll get on a platform like Incentive and they'll actually solve a problem. This guy did this for one of NASA's challenges called the Mars Balance Challenge. Uh, and he solved that problem. He was marine. You never would have suspected this person. He worked oil and gas. This was a trajectory adjustment problem. Uh, it was just a very different problem than his normal uh, uh, work. And he was from this town of like 800 in, in middle of Texas, you know, mm. rising star Texas. You never would have been able to find this person. Yeah. They end up solving this problem. Well, we checked back with, in on him like uh I don't know, a year later, and he had won something like 17 other challenges on incentive. <laughs> he, he was one of these people, you know, that, that's just, they love a good crossword. They love problem solving. Mm. Uh, and there's stories about people um, that came out of that Harvard study that, you know, there'll be some retired engineer who, you know, sits with a glass of scotch in his, in his garage looking through these challenge problems, and if something doesn't come to him in 15 minutes, they move on to the next. But... Yeah. 
they have kind of a magic kind of generalist uh, view of the world where they're always looking across technologies and are able to put two and two together, which, you know, ends up being the, the magic in a lot of things. Right, right. Yeah, that's amazing. So how do you put this to work for either for NASA or for other agencies or departments in the U.S. government? Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because uh, so on the NASA side, uh, there's a whole lot of work uh, really just applying this to our people's hard problems. You know, NASA's got a whole bunch of hard problems. Yeah. Um, and so we're trying to, to apply the latest and greatest tech and to uh, try to influence our, our uh, human resource side so that we can have access to people that have the latest and greatest skills that we might need. But we're also just trying to solve hard problems. Um, and then, you know, I actually spun off uh, and got an approved side gig where I actually uh, do consulting and talk to, to other companies because what I was seeing is there was a huge demand for people to understand how to leverage innovation for their organization and how to understand what's going on with both open talent, the gig economy, and open innovation because they're all related. It's, it's, there's massive changes. And I was getting so much conversation that was kind of outside of my job that I, I just decided, well, I'm going to just start, start doing this for real, right? Because uh, there's a, clearly a demand, and uh, my NASA job wasn't going to let me go <laughs> talk to, to a bunch of other companies as part of that job because mm, that's yeah. what we're paid to do. So, right, right. So that's been really interesting because I've found that there's, um, there is a whole change going on in the economy with the gig economy, and, you know, people, uh, these communities aren't, just about challenges. They're about these platforms' ability to find tasks and work for people. So if you think about Uber, Uber just finds people that need rides and matches them up with people that have cars. You're right. Well, that same technology and approach is being used to take people that know how to code in Java and match them up with people that need coding in Java <laughs> and people that need machine learning with people that know how to do that and they're doing that really really effectively on platforms like freelancer and upwork and TopTal and btg and maven and so we're finding we can you know actually go hire a skill that we wouldn't necessarily hire a full-time person for but just hire them to come do a task for us and then boom it's done we've leveraged somebody with the latest and greatest skills we've gotten a product and it, it gives us a jump start right um, and again, there's so much going on. The old model where a company could hire all the right skills and execute are, are kind of gone. You, you can't hire your way out of the skill diversity and skill changes going on right now and survive for very much longer because uh, the jobs that you hired people for five years ago are slowly going away and the people that you need to hire, those jobs may not be in, invented until, you know, six months from now. And, and how do you deal with that? And uh, this idea of owning people uh, as employees, full-time employees, uh, and owning their assets, that model is likely going to erode. Uh, there's a prediction that by 2027, half of the entire workforce will be freelance. Well, that's that's huge. Mm. And most times when I, when I tell people that, 
the experts say, oh yeah, it's happening much, much faster than that. Yeah. In fact, there's a whole conversation going on right now with COVID-19. It says this mix of putting everyone at home for a long time and laying a bunch of people off are going to be a magic mix that just accelerates the crap out of that entire uh, trend because people that get laid off probably have dabbled in the freelance gig economy and in these communities and that's where they're going to turn to go try to make ends meet and when companies start rehiring they're not going to want to rehire full-time at first they're going to want contingent until they know the economy is stable well that's going to increase the demand side and once people see the efficiency of of that kind of work it's going to be a rebalancing it's not going to be a total shift but it will be a rebalancing i think yeah yeah it, it makes you think uh, next time you're interviewing for a mechanical engineering position maybe you should hire a violinist instead yeah <laughs> well, I mean, you definitely want to to find people that are 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 embracing lifelong learning yeah uh, i think that is the magic people that are looking at one specialty and one set of tools you know you just better make sure that 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 one thing is something that's grounded in in a technology that's going to be here for a while uh, or a need what we tell people is look don't be a, a system or a technology owner be a problem owner Mm. Right, because uh, 3M 3M is a great example of that. Right, they stopped yeah. being a mining company and they started to kind of own everything that was sticky. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah, yeah. You know, people always need sticky, and so you you're always looking for the next technology. We find engineers are especially susceptible to falling in love with their technology, and this day and age, you kind of have. Be really in love with solving the problem, because then you're always looking for, hey, what's a new tech that'll actually come and solve this better? Um, that's the other thing. Solutions aren't point solutions. I mean, they are point solutions. We need to be seeking the next level of solution, right? The concept of moving goalposts, uh, and so it's always about how do we get more performance. Sorry, I can talk about this stuff life all day long so yeah feel yeah. free to cut me off no 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 it's uh, it's quite interesting and uh, we you and i have had exchanges in the past about employee swapping where you take somebody from one company and trade them to another company which is not even in their same field at all like i was saying like maybe yeah. a somebody in food preparation goes to work for a mining company and the mining company person goes to the the food preparation because that's that's where the different lines of thinking and, and the knowledge silos can be yeah. eroded down and if you have uh, if you're a big enough Absolutely. company you can tolerate enough of those differences that sooner or later there's going to be some very large advances made because of those swaps. Yeah, no, I think the diversity and cross-industry uh, connections are vital. I, I would say it'll be interesting to see if, if it's active programs like that or if it's simply um, starting to let people participate in the cross-industry world. Uh, one of the things that I've been encouraging companies to do is to let their employees start to do side gigs and that is totally not intuitive uh, I get it you know you in the old 
way you captured them and didn't want to let them go no matter what you exploited them to the best that you could but here's the thing it's like remote work yeah. when people first started remote work uh, there weren't a lot of guidelines and people were kind of do it didn't know how to trust that and now now they know how to companies say look you've got to have a secure environment you've got to have a safe environment you've got to make sure someone's taking care of you because you have guidelines the right. thing is people are doing side gigs now mm-hmm. and whether your company knows it or not I would I would dare you to, to actually pull your workforce because I would say you'd you'd find a you know anywhere from 10 to 30 percent of your workforce is likely doing some level of side gig and they're doing that without any guidance from you or any HR, right? So let's start putting guide rules rails on it and say, hey, you can go do this. And in fact, we encourage you so that you'll actually get exposed to some of these other industry problems. So you'll get exposed to some of uh, what's going on in the rest of the world and so that you can start to learn. And we'll give you 10% of your time, let's say, to go do that. And the only restrictions are, you know, don't give away our IP, you know, bring back some lessons learned every once in a while, you know, whatever you want those guide rails to be. And then what you start to see happening is those people start to benefit from the cross-industry problems that they encounter on these platforms. They start seeing what, you know, people are doing in mining because they worked on a mining project and they see what, well, that was for me, for, for you, you know, <laughs> to, to participate in a challenge or to participate in some of these others because then they start to see and interact with people in these other domains around real problems, right? And that also starts to be kind of a, a development, a, a human development piece. Uh, and you can even say, hey, look, if you win a challenge, you keep the proceeds. And if you look at... <laughs> This is a much cheaper training program than what people are doing today. On average, companies are spending $1,000 per employee per year on training, and almost all of that is compliance, which means all of their people are becoming less and less uh, valuable because they are not keeping up. There's a lot of internal domain knowledge, but they're missing out on all this other stuff. And so what's an affordable way to do that? And I would say, hey, the side, side gig stuff, because they ultimately came to work for you because they're passionate about what you're doing, right? And so help them maintain that passion. Yeah, no, that that's terrific. And uh, a lot of times this, the side gig isn't just to make money, it's to have fun. Exactly. Well, see, that's the thing. Passion is the real secret to all of this, right? These communities that are most successful are promoting the passion piece. They're promoting do what you love the most, and then your productivity goes up. You have don't have to work as hard because you don't have as many hours. What we're finding is when you take a step back, companies have really been driving the fun out of work for a long time now. Yeah. Uh, most engineers I know, even even at NASA, right? they don't feel like their creativity is being appreciated. They don't feel like they, and you're like, you're working on this really great stuff. And you're like, yeah, but I'm working part of a big team. I've got a bunch of bureaucracy. I got to sit through eight hour meetings Mm. and we're taking all the fun out of it. And if you look at the productivity numbers, the productivity numbers say on average, just average across industry, only three out of every eight hours are productive, which means all of these staff meetings, all this bureaucracy, 
is taking a toll and people see it they sense it they feel they are not productive they feel like when they have a great idea no one wants to listen to them and so i think that's a huge driver of why people are leaving to go to the freelance workforce and so companies need to look for ways to how do we how do we keep you engage but give you enough that you're still growing and learning and bringing the, the benefits of that back into the organization and i think that's going to have to be a much looser uh relationship i guess with the employees um and maybe a build up of trust you know finding ways that you can trust that your folks aren't going to go and and share your most intimate secrets and maybe just restructuring things uh but yeah it's it's a interesting time and everything i'm seeing in these passion communities uh like topco or like innocent or like tongle uh is that they're capitalizing on something uh in a way that that makes what they produce higher quality makes their people happier um in fact topcoder just did a uh, documentary out there on youtube called uh, the it's the passion economy um where they interviewed kind of the top five or six freelancers that they have in their community um and it was amazing stories that, that these folks told uh one of their head project managers the, the freelance project managers he uh i asked him I, i had a panel at one of their events where i had these four individuals and i asked him i said how much time do you spend learning new stuff did i tell you he said 60% of the time really like, who's who's able to spend 60% of their time i said how do you have time to make any money he mm. says oh no no i i go and do a lot of fun things in my spare time but but in the time the 40% of the time i do work uh in my work time i'm making six times what the average person in greece makes mm. anyways and this is like a 28 year old the the workload is out there like the 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 global work uh capacity of what needs to be done is out there it's just repositioned wrong people don't yeah. have the right skills to do this and i think these platforms are starting to help to train people and get them connected to the work which is the really exciting part yeah 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 but that's great no what uh, the the world is changing in many ways and it's good for people to know how we're changing and and uh how they can participate better and more fully yeah it's interesting cuz um early on in this process i was looking at the automation problem and what what that's posing to the workforce uh in terms of layoffs and people having to reskill and it's funny because in the old world model outsourcing was the reason you were going to lose your job and so when people say crowdsourcing and and freelancing i think they think of that but i've actually gotten to the point where i think that this new gig economy this new freelance style is is what people have to migrate to if they hope to keep a job when automation takes the jobs because if you're freelance on one of these platforms you have access to global work you have time to actually upskill like the guy I was talking about you you actually have that kind of agility needed to keep up with this 
super high velocity rate of change that's going on. And if you look at the model of corporate America that we've had for you know 100 years, that model very much doesn't support that rate of change mm-hmm. in any capacity, individually, as an organization. And those organizations are starting to yeah. fail, you know? Yeah. Uh, if you look yeah. at the last 15 years, the Fortune 500, right, half of those companies are gone. Those are the most successful. Companies. Right, right. Yeah. So it, it's happening, right? Uh, and, and I think that I started to look at that and think, you know, the, the agileness of that workforce will be able to do lifelong learning, to keep up with things, and to actually make everything uh, work better. Uh, whereas the old model pretty much dooms people to getting laid off eventually. Yeah, well, I know that's kind of doing the loop. Sorry, no, that, that's that's okay. We're we're in the apocalypse anyway, right? Exactly right. Yeah, yeah. Well, I I I don't know what else to cover unless you've got anything else that you'd oh, like gosh. to share with us. We've we've covered a lot of ground. I guess my the the one. The one thing we didn't talk about that I'm pretty passionate about is, is innovation and innovation methodology. Yeah. Uh, we see a lot of people, you know, we talk about crowdsourcing going outside. One of the things that I think is equally important is the ability really to understand uh, problem analysis and decomposition and, and deconstruction. Uh, we go in a lot of places where um, engineers don't understand their problem well enough and they, mm. they're trying to solve it and in our culture we've gotten to where somebody will say hey I've got this problem and we instantly try to start solving it rather than trying to understand it and I, I, I go back to the Einstein quote you know if I had you know an hour to solve the world's problems uh, or a crucial problem I would spend 55 minutes defining the problem and 5 minutes solving it I think that's absolutely right it's it's we need to spend more time understanding our problem if we hope to solve them Uh, so we're always looking at okay you need better performance in this system well what is the performance you know quantify that am i trying to go from you know uh, one year mean time between failures to five years okay Mm -hmm. now let's look at what's what's my most unreliable components to the system and maybe i can do a challenge or a tech search around just those compressors or just those bearings or whatever it is and by doing that kind of work you can really make a lot more progress um top coder actually did that with um, an algorithm in the genomics area where they put the problem out there and they actually the way they did it with contests they ended up finding architectural fixes and then fixes with the data and then fixes with the the way the the code was structured so it could be multinodal and another with the machine learning and by the time they were done they had a 561 times improvement in the performance wow and i was like wow yeah that is you know taking you know and getting a 3x improvement over here and a 5x improvement over here and Mm -hmm. then you know before you know it you've got a game-changing technology yeah and I I see over and over organizations don't spend enough time and they aren't even familiar with the the, the techniques out there There there's so many great innovation techniques 
by Tina Selig at Stanford and uh, Warren Berger with uh, The More Beautiful Question. And like they just go on and on. Uh, and there's an entire industry out there of folks who will, will help you with that. But it's, it is fascinating because a few facilitated workshops can really turn an engineering team into to real superstars. And then you combine that with this external crowdsourcing uh, and open innovation techniques. And it just, it creates a, a huge tool set that you can point at uh, things that we normally would just kind of assign to an engineer to go work. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's going to be impressive the adv- the advances we make on several different uh, avenues over the next few years. Absolutely, yeah. Like I say, we live in interesting times all all the way around. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Well, Steve, I, I think I'm out of questions. If somebody wanted to get a hold of you, and I'm thinking especially for, as your role at Crowd Resources. How would they get a hold of you? Yeah, yeah. LinkedIn is usually the easiest way for most okay. people to find me and, and to contact me. Uh, I think that's how you and I connected. Uh, yeah. Wiki Stratton, uh, yeah. Uh, and it seems to be pretty universal. You just stick in Steve Rader, and uh, if you want, you can stick the word NASA in there, but you'll usually find me with that. Okay. Yeah, terrific. Um, you're welcome to email me, uh, steven.n.rader at gmail.com. Uh, but yeah, I can point you to a website and all that good stuff. But LinkedIn's a pretty good place to start. I agree. Yeah, it's the world's best Rolodex to me. If people know what Rolodexes are these days. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> well, Steve. Steve, I appreciate your time and your insight and sharing all this with us today. And I, I know you've got a day job that you've probably got to get back to, so I will let you go. Uh, but I, again, many, many thanks for spending so much time with us. It has been a really valuable to, um, get together. Well, thank you, Brian. I really enjoy talking with you. Uh, this is this is always fun to talk about this stuff, and uh, like you say, there's a lot going on. So uh, happy to talk to anybody who wants to chat. So glad glad folks like you are doing podcasts like this. Great. Well, thanks. It's been a really nice afternoon, and thanks once again, Steve, and hope to catch up with you sometime in the near future. Great. Thanks. Well, that's it. I'm Brian, and this is Behind the Scenes with Brian. Until next time, keep on rocking.